0: We've been thinking a lot about race and friendships here at Codeswitch, about what we've learned about race through our friendships, and also when we've made big mistakes or been really hurt and disappointed. We're working on an upcoming project about this with Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC, and we want to hear from you. When has race been a flashpoint in your friendships? Tell us your story. Send a voice memo or an email to codeswitch at npr.org. Thanks. Ooh, chimes and everything.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You are listening to Code Switch from NPR.
0: (laughs) My little pretties. I'm Gene Dummy. I'm Karen (laughs) Crixby-Bates, sitting in for Shireen.
1: So, y'all, here on Code Switch, we have this little nickname for the Halloween season. Uh, It's called Blackface Advent. Uh, Because you can almost set your watch to it. Like every October, we hear news stories about costume parties at schools or at workplaces or on college campuses. You know, some grainy footage of some sorority party will leak out into the world. And it becomes Mm -hmm. a whole controversy around, you know, people doing the most or doing the worst. It's a month of blackface controversies and redface controversies and yellowface scandals. And it all culminates in blackface Christmas on October 31st. Racial mockery and trash candy. Tis the reason for the season. Karen, can you tell I hate Halloween? I can, <laughs> okay, but good. you
0: know what? Good. Almond Joys are not
1: trash candy, we'll take These that up later. They are the later. worst. Mm. They're anyway. better than mounds, <laughs> but that's not saying much.
0: You know, lately, it's kind of felt like people were in the Halloween spirit all year long, mm. not just on Halloween. What with all the elected officials who've had their own little blackface scandals this year.
1: Yeah, I almost forgot that that Northam stuff was this year. It feels like so long ago.
0: It's been a long year. Yes. And more recently, the same thing happened with the prime minister of Canada, although Justin Trudeau's people called it brown face uh, when he got darker while in college, I think, uh, in costume as what he thought an Arabian prince would wear.
1: Because everything is terrible. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Everything is terrible right now. Whether it's historical ignorance, a lack of understanding of the weight of certain symbols, or genuine malice, it's easy for these celebrations of the merry and macabre to brush up against our country's very dark past.
1: And listeners, that's what we're talking about this week. Celebrating fear in an age of actual horrors. How it can make things worse, and how it can make things better. So first up, KGB, you were telling me this wild story from not too long ago. (laughs) About one of your neighbors who is very zealous about this time of year. Yes. Okay, so set the scene for us. I know you live in a black neighborhood, but it's become a hot spot for gentrification. And the neighbor in the story, uh, who loves him some Halloween, is a white dude, correct?
0: Uh, Oh, yes. (laughs) So there have been a few cultural misunderstandings as the new neighbors move in. Um, He's a relatively new neighbor. He's been here less than two years. And apparently, he and his wife are really into Halloween. Their house stands out because it's the most elaborately decorated one on the block. And, Gene, I came out of my house recently to see a skeleton hanging from a noose attached to the big magnolia tree in front of his house.
1: Y'all can't see me right now, but I slid all the way out out of the chair. I'm like melted into the carpet.
0: Yeah, yeah. I thought it was just me. Mm -hmm. And while I was there sort of blinking at this amazing sight, (laughs) a couple was walking up the hill. And I heard the guy say, what the f***? So I knew I wasn't hallucinating.
1: Oh, my God. So is that, is it still hanging up from this dude's tree? No.
0: My neighbor, who is black, lives between him and me. And she went over and knocked on his door and said, listen, you need to take that down. Bless her. Yeah. She told him that nooses strike a particularly unfortunate note in black neighborhoods and that many of the residents who live in this neighborhood might have older relatives or come from places who know someone who's had that lived experience. Yes. So what did he say? He was horrified. He said he had no idea, didn't intend the message, and he took skeleton swinging from the noose down right away.
1: Okay, that's good, right?
0: He did replace them with big bags of simulated bloody guts, or I don't know, maybe it was body parts or something. I didn't look too closely.
1: Oh, Halloween. There's no life in me. I've, I'm going up the yonder. I can't. I can't. So, KGB, you're, um, let's say, enthusiastic. Your Enthusiastic Neighbor uh, is one example. But with Halloween, so much of the problem with tackling this imagery is that it's mass-produced in a lot of ways. Like, think of all those Native American costumes you can just buy anywhere, right? You know the ones I'm talking about, listeners. It's got a headdress, maybe some feathers, there's some fringe. Karen, you spoke to one of our colleagues, Layla Faddle, who said that particular costume has become a shorthand for Native Americans across the country, across time, no matter their tribe or nation.
2: You know, you know those costumes. Every year they're in the prepackaged plastic wrap, Native American woman, Native American man, on the shelves of pretty much every uh, yes, I saw
0: some earlier this week. <laughs> right. It'll be like a long-sleeved shirt
3: um, with fringe on the edge of the sleeve or on the chest or something like that.
2: I spoke to Hainu Josephine Tarrant. She's a New York-based artist, performer. She's of the Ho-Chunk, Hopi, and Rappahannock tribes. And she says those shirts actually harken back to a very specific time in the 19th century when white settlers were moving west, displacing indigenous people.
3: During all of this and all of these Dakota wars and these other wars and these removal acts and starvation and famine and tuberculosis smallpox, I mean, so many sicknesses and violence was attached to that time period. A shirt like that is meant to kind of like represent that, you know, represent a war shirt or represent a ghost dance shirt. And these are shirts that would be worn by Native people during this particular time in history.
2: That this costume is literally based on a shirt. That people were hoping it would protect them from violence as the land was settled is harder to acknowledge as problematic because that's the founding of this nation and the founding of the nation is problematic. But And she, she made that point, too. How come this like violent moment in which we're depicted in one specific way is what you choose to memorialize yeah, forever and ever and ever
0: forever. via these costumes?
3: In a way, it really um, is a reflection of, I guess, the the nation's kind of um, depiction of what we, what how we look to them and what we are to them.
0: The general world is making them eternal victims because of the time period they chose to freeze in amber. Exactly. So, seeing these fake suede fringe shirts, the fake braids each year. What does she feel when she actually sees these costumes
2: being sold and being worn? She's exhausted, she said. She feels like in a lot of cases, people will retire certain costumes when they finally understand the offensive nature. And although we still see people don blackface now and again, there is a national uproar because there is an understanding of the history of dehumanization and degradation that goes with that. And she feels like... It's very hard for people to understand that same feeling for Native American communities because it's part of this sort of history that's depicted in the films and the silent era films.
3: After Manifest Destiny and through the silent film era into, you know, films with sound, there was a reoccurring theme of like cowboys and Indians always, Mm -hmm. you know, because that is kind of like the quote unquote American story of how we conquered this land, how we went west, and how the 50 states came to be.
0: So this would be the sort of thing that we always saw in all the old John Wayne movies of the, you know, the war whoops and the riding bareback on ponies and swooping down and swinging a tomahawk and speaking in um, English that they don't use in real
2: life. Right. And then the other side of cultural appropriation is, that money that's being made off of all these costumes is not going to these communities. And, um, and she talked about that as well. Like, if you do want to appreciate us in some way, appreciate our culture, which has so much beauty and so much history in it, you can do that.
3: In a way, I completely understand, as a non-Native person, why you find our culture beautiful, you know? And I would never look down on somebody for thinking something's beautiful. But you need to find another way to support us. We have products. We have jewelry. We have podcasts. We, you know, we have theater. We have all of these things that we are trying to work on, too, you know, and we're trying to get out there, and I would say that's one of the best ways to support us, you know. Um, Repeatedly in this country, we've not been honored, you know, from treaties to land agreements to, you know, annuities from the state, you know, uh, to water rights. I mean, constantly uh, we are denied uh, that support from this country.
0: Well, hopefully as time goes on, we'll be seeing less and less of those kinds of costumes and more and more support for the communities that the costumes are alleged to represent. Yes.
2: Speaking of, what are you wearing for
0: Halloween? <laughs> if I can find the right stuff, I might go to Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
2: Ooh.
0: I need a gavel. And you need the, the like, the little lace collar. Yeah. I think nine zillion other people had that idea. You I should do
2: her workout them.
0: outfit, actually.
2: Oh, with a little, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with a <her> little two
0: pound weight. <laughs> <waist>. Yes. <laughs> That's about my speed. Lady <laughs> <Me too. laughs> Paddle. Thanks so much. Thank you.
1: When we come back, how horror fiction can help us process real-life trauma.
4: Real life is so scary. Racism is so scary. Climate change is so scary that a movie about some demons and monsters and vampires, listen, that's nothing. That's after the break.
1: Stay with us, damn it. Stay with us. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Discover Card. You check things all the time like your email or social media. But Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply.
4: Maddie Safaya here, host of NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave. This week, don't miss a special batch of Halloween episodes, including one on the terrifying intelligence <laughs> of crows. <laughs> Listen and subscribe to Shortwave from NPR.
1: Gene. Karen. Codeswitch. And we're back talking about fear in an age of horrors.
0: Jean, you sat down with Tanana Reeve Du. She's an author of several supernatural thrillers. I've read many of them, and she's an amazing writer. Yep. And she teaches a class here in L.A. at UCLA on black horror and
1: Afrofuturism. Yes, and Tanana Reeve told me that she got her love for scary movies from her mother, who a lot of people may know, the influential civil rights organizer Patricia Stevens Du.
4: As a kid watching horror, for me it was like a roller coaster ride, like wee! Because I hadn't been through anything. I hadn't lost anything or anyone. But from my mother, who had um, felt unsafe in her own nation, who had been uh, targeted by state violence during the Civil Rights era, I really now believe that she found a kind of solace in the fake monsters, mm-hmm. the monsters that weren't real, because she didn't believe in vampires. She didn't believe in zombies. She had no actual superstitions in real life that I can think of. So she was not a believer in any of this stuff. <laughs> this was all escape. <laughs> right. So it's a way to sort of uh, you take that pain and the horror that you're walking around with, Find something on a screen that replicates what your fear looks like, and go through a process. So either the hero or heroine is going to fall, or they are going to win. But either way, you've been through some kind of process where you can just whoo exhale afterward and right. walk away. And oh, that wasn't even real, you know. So whatever, whatever is on my plate, whatever is dogging me, is not going to be that. It's not a demon, at least.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and I guess like horror also has, you know, like often has in-universe rules. So, like, the victims, usually they've transgressed in some way, right? They're teenagers who are having sex. Maybe they covered up some kind of crime. Maybe they're just greedy. Um, And so there's, like, the element of punishment there. But in real life, the kind of violence that people experience because of their identities is much more randomized, right? Like, it feels like...
4: That is, yes, so well put. I mean, that is true. I mean, I I teach how to write horror, too. And one of the the common elements you find in both cinematic and literary horror, is that because these protagonists are human, Mm
1: -hmm. they
4: do have flaws. And what you do is you you amplify those personal flaws as the doorway that leads them to the mouth of the supernatural. So there is this sense that even a small transgression can be so unforgiven in the world of a horror novel or, or a horror movie, that it unlocks the door of the demon, or you know, it, it wakes the vampire, or it leads you straight into the arms of a zombie, because you weren't even supposed to be here right now. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you're supposed to be somewhere else, but now, too bad for you. Um, and, and in those old slasher movies in the 80s, it was so obvious too, like if you had sex, mm-hmm. if you did drugs, <laughs> you were in big trouble in a horror movie. <laughs>
1: Was there, like, a seminal horror movie that you picked up just, like, in proximity to your mom? That, like, what were the movies or the books that she really, really rocked with that sort of resonated with you? One of
4: them is is the movie Mole People. Right? I just remember being a kid, watching this movie Mole People, thinking it was so scary. Can you tell us a little about the Mole People? I've,
1: I've never seen this movie.
4: It's... Mostly very forgettable, but it's a bunch of of scientists who, I don't know, they discover like an alternate world under the earth Uh where these weird humanoid creatures have created some kind of dominion over deformed-looking mole people.
2: The blood-lusting mole people storming from their subterranean caverns.
4: Who were, you know, dark. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> they, oh, man. But,
4: I mean, they don't look human so much, but they're definitely dark and hunched and dressed in rags. And, you know, that's probably what, what scared me most was that they were down there being abused that way. That was what was scary. Mm. In adulthood, just a couple months ago, I went back to look at mole people to try to see why it spoke to me so much. <laughs> and I was very confused for the longest time. <laughs> it was not <laughs> well done. The acting wasn't good. Uh-huh. It was really kind of bland. These scientists are on an expedition. I'm like, whatever. But then the mole people showed up. And they're supposed to be the scary monster, you know, to the viewer the movie was intended for. But I got it as an adult, why it had spoken to me so much as a child. I related to the mole people. They were dressed in tatters. They were being whipped and forced to work. They were hmm. they were a slave metaphor. And we were supposed to feel so bad for the heroine when the mole person drags her under the sand and she's screaming. But I was like, you know, viva la revolucion, baby. Let's get, you know, let's rise up. <laughs>
1: All right, Tanana Reeve. So I'm going to play shrink with you for a second. It doesn't seem on the surface that, you know, going to watch people be hacked or <laughs> hacked to pieces would be self-care for someone who thinks about <laughs> race a lot. <laughs> um, so what is, what is it about the experience for you in consuming and creating horror that is therapeutic or cathartic?
4: Yeah, that idea of watching people hack to pieces for no reason doesn't appeal to me mm-hmm. either, I have to say. Okay. Um, there are times I, I, I walk out of a horror experience feeling further traumatized, hmm. not less traumatized. You know, like this: there's a family camping and somebody killed everybody, including the baby. That's... That's not fun to you know that's not fun to watch and for some people that's what horror is like every horror movie is just that so they can't understand why anyone would like that stuff mm-hmm. when in fact there's a wide variety of kinds of horror from psychological horror which has no supernatural element but um, to sci- to science fiction horror like a movie like Alien or get out is science fiction um, because of the science element. Um, supernatural, demon horror, haunted house horror. And for the ones that do appeal to me, and I love all of those. I love the haunted house. I love the family on vacation and something goes wrong story. Because every single time I get to watch characters, hopefully that I care about, that's where I have to start, Mm -hmm. characters who seem real and whose lives I care about, confront something they were either definitely afraid to confront or had no idea even existed until right now. You mean there's demons, right? Rise to the occasion. Uh, figure it out. Fight back. You know, I, I really think that the survival strategies and horror appeal to me.
0: They're coming to get you,
3: Barbara.
2: Stop it! You're ignorant.
3: They're coming for you, Barbara.
4: Um, my students were all laughing at the way Barbara falls and trips and you know just sort of sags on a corner. And Night of the Living Dead, oh, no. oh, Johnny, help me. Oh. and that behavior does not appeal to me because that behavior will not do anything for me if anything really goes down where I have to run or fight. And I do think in a time of heightened political crisis and social crisis a lot of us do sort of sit with that feeling that we don't know, was that a car backfiring or do we need to dive under this table? Mm -hmm. And if I have to dive under this table, what do I need to grab so I can hit somebody with it? You know, this is more and more in the back of our minds. Are your neighbors going to descend on you for no reason because of something that has nothing to do with you? Are you going to have to run? These are real questions. So for me, uh, horror isn't theoretical. It's not like what if scary things happened, (laughs) It's like it's scary things do happen, and I want to watch people dealing with scary things because they're teaching me how to survive, the ones who do survive, and they're also teaching me what not to do, the ones who don't survive. Mm-hmm. So either way, I walk out of a good horror movie feeling, like I said, empowered. And, and to me, it's worth it, like going through that gamut uh, and being frightened Um, and seeing characters rise to the challenge, and and usually somebody can walk away, right? That feeling of triumph really feeds something deep in me. But I do, I will add this, uh, as more and more black horror and horror starring black people gets popular, we do have to grapple with this question of how we treat black bodies and violence against black bodies on screen because this is this is very real. You know, um, a traumatized community in its entertainment in some ways is not going to be able to sit and relax at watching certain kinds of violence, right? Of course, in horror, people do die, but you want to give death meaning and you want to treat death with respect. You don't write lazily so that a character does something stupid and dies. You don't do that in any kind of horror, but especially for black characters, do not let them go out being stupid.
1: Especially in real life in which, you know, violence, deadly violence against black and brown people is often sort of treated as meaningless and almost like a natural thing.
4: Yeah, I'm still so upset that Mike Brown's body was left lying out in that street for hours and hours on some kind of display, you know, as if to some sort of like warning to the community. What It's just a sick, I won't even, someone might say, oh, it was an oversight or whatever, but that oversight, are you kidding me? That And that kind of trauma is something that we live with. So even if we don't know Mike Brown, that might not be my son, we know it could be our son. That could be our street, right? Mm -hmm. And it feels very personal. So so yes, knowing that, um, creating black characters and brown characters, you have, there's a wariness that a lot of us carry in life where, you know, the joke that we make fun as we watch horror movies, oh, people would never do that. And I kind of, you know, just roll our eyes in bad horror movies, I would say. So So our characters have to sort of bring that same awareness <laughs> in in the fiction, in the horror, you know, in the fiction and in the films, that they're not arbitrarily doing stupid things, that they're thinking it through, that if there's a sign of trouble, you react to that sign of trouble. You don't walk toward it, you walk away from it.
1: I'm thinking about just the other day after... President Trump made his comments about lynching. One of the things that was happening on Twitter was people were trying to Mm. make a point about lynching by sharing photos from lynchings, from actual lynchings of black people in the United States. And it was this really sort of macabre, thing that was happening where people were trying to use these very grisly photos to make a point about why people should not be cavalier about lynching, about using that language, even as they were being sort of cavalier about showing these bodies. And it sort of occurred to me that we rarely see white people's bodies treated with that sort of casualness um, to make like rhetorical points. And it sort of underlines your point, the point you're making about the way black bodies are treated in horror.
4: Well, I, you know, I totally understand what happened there because I felt an impulse myself. Like lynching. Okay, this is what lynching. I I totally get it. I was so angry, and then I stopped myself because you know, as my follower count grows, I start to realize I have to to sort of be mindful about the the impact of the images uh, that I tweet have on my followers who are already traumatized, mm-hmm. right? So whether they're black, they're white, whatever. It's we're all sort of like minded in like what the hell is going on, <laughs> and. Daily trauma is is bad enough. You know, I learned with Tamir Rice, the poor um, child shot playing with a toy gun in Cleveland, that I can't watch police videos anymore. So even if you tell me this 11-year-old girl is only being beaten or whatever by a police officer, I can't, I know, I can't watch that, which might sound funny um, or ironic, rather, for someone who writes horror. But I don't have the same stomach for real-life horror. Mm -hmm. And to me, a, a police officer... Physically abusing or even berating an 11-year-old child at her school is horror.
1: So horror movies and horror fiction provides like a safe way to process the feelings of horror around things like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown that can't get resolved in real life?
4: Yeah, for me... Um Real life is so scary. Racism is so scary. Climate change is so scary that a movie about some demons and monsters and vampires, listen, that's nothing, right? I can have fun watching that and get scared in a safe way that helps me engage with my fear in a way that won't hurt me or paralyze me and then expel it. Walk out, go on about my business and be like, well, at least this president isn't a zombie or whatever i want to tell myself <laughs> 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 or you know at least there isn't a zombie outbreak going on while we're undergoing this presidency is what i mean to say you know because that would be worse uh they just would <laughs> and <laughs> so it makes you kind of grateful for for the fact that there is no such thing as a zombie apocalypse that we know of that you know we don't actually know people who were possessed probably you know but yeah it's a lighter gentler way to engage with fear.
1: Tanana Reeve Du is a professor at UCLA where she teaches a class on black horror and Afrofuturism, and she's also an author. Tanana Reeve, thank you so much.
4: Oh, my pleasure. This has been great.
1: So many long-time listeners of the Code Switch Podcast know that we often ask people to tell us the song that is currently giving them life. Uh, We haven't done that in a minute. We're trying to get back into it. But since KGB is here, I'm going to put you on the spot. Karen, what song is giving you life right now?
0: Gene, it's Halloween week. So what song would I be listening to except Stevie Wonder's Superstition?
1: Alright y'all, that's our show. For even more Code Switch Halloween content, check out our blog. Our intern Angela Vang wrote about all the Halloween nonsense that you should endeavor to stay away from this season. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. You can follow Shereen at Radio Mirage and me at G-E-E-D-E-215. And Karen, what's your screen name again? At Karen Bates. Fancy, right? Yes, very fancy. Uh, we want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts, which well, should be NPR One.
0: This episode was produced by Kamari Devarajan and Jess Kung. It was also edited by Leah Danella.
1: And we would be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch fam, L.A. Johnson, Adrian Florido, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Steve Drummond. Our intern, as you heard, is Angela Vang. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. Shireen is back next week. Bees, y'all. Boo!
0: People are obsessed with zombies, whether it's watching them be hacked away on TV or planning for the apocalypse.
1: So this week on Throughline, we're exploring the origins of the zombie. And just like the movies, it's a dark one.
0: Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time
1: to understand the present. <laughs> zombies
0: don't <laughs> laugh like that, though.
1: No, that's true.